Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we're going to talk about healthy families and their influence on culture. But just before we get to that, we just wanted to remind you we're on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. That's where you can download this podcast. And also, we wanted to let you know about an upcoming conference that they are hosting in Tennessee this year, uh, upcoming on September 9th to 11th. There's a conference called the Politics of Sex Conference. And so you're going to want to go to the FightLaughFeastNetwork.com, F-L-F-M, sorry, F. LFnetwork.com and click on the events tab there and you can see if you're a Fight Laugh Feast Club member you get a hundred dollar discount on that conference so you can find all the details again at FLFnetwork.com. Amen. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great conference. I'm hoping to go myself unless I'm in jail or something like that. So uh, for listeners that are that are interested in just uh, continuing to expand their awareness of what's going on in culture and respond to the challenges of the world within which we live. Uh, conferences like this are are A1. And so I'd strongly encourage you to consider going. Excellent. So getting into our topic today, Aaron, healthy families and their influence on culture. We know that the family as a creational institute is absolutely under attack in our societies. Yep. Before we get further though into identifying those attacks and specifically how to respond can you just help us understand what we mean by creational institution? Yeah. So when God created the world, the first institution that he created was the family. So he created man. Man was lonely. He created Eve. We have the first couple. And they ultimately create the first household and the first family. So um, we, we call this a creational institution because there's a temptation to call it when we talk about our Christian view of the family, sometimes we say, oh, we have a traditional view of the family. Well, traditions are the ways of men. And the word traditional just sounds old. It's better and more accurate to say we have a creational view of the family. In other words, our view of the family has nothing to do, nothing to do with uh, you know, what took place 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It, it, it has everything to do with how God has created and ordained things to function. And so the the first creational institution was the family, the household. And what's interesting is that right away uh, when sin entered the world, the family came under attack. So we have marriage being attacked in Genesis 3.16. One of the consequences of sin is that the wife refuses to submit to her husband. The husband's too heavy-handed over his wife. They're sort of out to get each other. Uh, we have the very first boy ever born, murdered his brother Abel, Cain and Abel. So we have a breakdown of sibling relationships. Later on, God had to put laws into place like in Exodus 21. Uh, in Exodus 20, it says, you know, honor your father and mother. In Exodus 21, if you, you know, strike your father or mother, you can be put to death. So all these passages remind us that while God created the family, mom, dad, functioning as husband and wife and their children, all of these relationships have been affected by by sin. The husband and wife are at each other's throats. Kids are at each other's throats. Parents are sometimes at their kids' throats, kids at their parents' throats. So um, 
it's the original creational institution. It's under attack. It's been affected by sin, but it still stands as a gospel union. Because if you go forward to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter five and six, we have this beautiful redemptive picture painted for us of a husband and wife when they properly function in marriage and understand their roles. They actually put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. The husband essentially dramatizes and role plays the the the, the role of the uh, of Christ in the relationship as he lovingly leads his wife and loves her as much as his own body and as the wife submits herself to the to the to the husband just as Christ submitted himself to the father and uh, Philippians chapter two, she role plays and puts on display the role of the church, and and when it comes to ch- the church in Christ, that's that's a that's a wonderful relationship, and so marriage is supposed to reflect that, and it can also be a wonderful relationship when people function within their God ordained categories. That's a helpful distinction. That you know, traditional versus creational institution. I think that is very helpful. So, what are some of the underlying ideologies that you know? that do undermine the creational view of the family and maybe how do they contribute to the the uh, the dismissive attitude that we see so popular today well the biggest enemy is is uh, evolution evolutionary theory is not in any way shape or form interested in or does not affirm a creational view of the family in fact it affirms the exact opposite that human beings or pre-human beings just sort of ran around looking for their own interests, living off the land. They sort of lived in animalistic clans and they, you know, they were, they were polygamists and, you know, had sex with whoever they wanted and there was incest and they just sort of inbred and did, you know, just kind of, they, they literally functioned like a, you know, a tribe of chimpanzees just kind of doing whatever they wanted. So that's the, the evolutionary view of the family. And in evolution, they would argue that uh, the family unit rose as sort of a, a, a an, an, ins, an institution of convenience or an institution of accommodation so that as groups of early humans interacted with one another in order to protect one another and and uh, hunt they f- they formed these tribes and then in order to to, to protect their offspring there was an, uh, over time the invention of you know marital unions etc and in this respect, there's nothing moral about the family. There's nothing enduring or eternal or creational about the family. The view is that it it's just it just accommodates uh, the issues that early humans experienced, and so then evolutionists would say, well, you know, as society has has moved along, if you get to a stable society, and relatively speaking. It's a very stable society that we live in compared to the evolutionary view of, you know, animals running around just sort of doing their own thing. It's no longer necessary. So the in, in evolutionary thinking, the family is no longer necessary because it's not an intrinsic institution. It's not tied to creation. There's nothing moral about it. So it's dismissed or, or reinterpreted. And this evolutionary notion then affects what we would call you know the the modern family the 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 secularized family where there's no moral foundation to it and so if you have no moral foundation well you know what's wrong with uh two wives and one husband or two husbands and one wife or multiple divorces and remarriage or living together or you know kids being uh you know usurping the authority of the parents or whatever it just it just becomes a free for all and and anything goes interestingly 
pastorally, sociologically, it's all these aberrant views of the family that actually end up creating the most problems, uh, pain, um, financial insecurity, child abuse, et cetera. Yeah. Those are the reasons we see people coming in for counseling is usually because of a, de- <laughs> yeah. it's a deviation of the family creation yeah, no, norm, right? <laughs> nobody walks in and says, Hey, I, you know, I, my life's falling apart. Oh, well, tell me about your family. Well, I, you know, I'm faithful to my wife. My kids are great. We read the scriptures. We follow the things of God. We're robustly involved in the life of a church. <laughs> it's always a deviation. Nobody right? comes in yeah. for marriage counseling and like, hey, you know, the problem with our marriage is we love each other. We're faithful to one another. We don't cheat on each other. You know, my the husband leads well. The, the wife submits to, to the husband as Christ or as the church submits to Christ. Nobody starts off the counseling appointment mm-hmm. that way. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. So what we obviously learn so much about our identities and our purpose in the families that raise us. So talk to us about that a little. Well, what we need to do as Christians is to just kind of think clearly about the nature of the family. A lot of Christian families are really secularized families. They're just thinking about getting the kids fed, getting them clothed, getting them through a good education, getting them onto university or whatever. Um, this this is uh, not... Um, an adequate way to raise your children. So we need to think of the family as a a nurturing and a pedagogical institution, a place where you're nurtured and you're taught. So all of us start off our lives in a family, uh, preferably with our biological parents, or if one of our parents has died, maybe in a single home, or if both our parents have died or whatever, maybe we're adopted. But ideally, we all start off in some sort of a family, And it's in that family that we learn all the foundational lessons that stick with us for the rest of our lives. We're taught, we should be taught, uh, a robust view of stewardship, that part of being an image bearer of God is to, on his behalf, have dominion over the world. We're not the king, we're the stewards. We're the appointees of the king to care for and steward and represent his purposes and mission into creation. When we, tr- when we think we own it, we always wreck it. But when we steward it, we're blessed. So ownership, we say, is the enemy of stewardship. It's mm-hmm. the opposite of. So God's the owner. We're the stewards. Uh, we don't claim to own it. We just steward it. And this is a lesson that we learn from our parents. We are a responsible Christian parents will teach their children a robust view of stewardship, that ultimately we're here to serve our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we need to care for our money and our property and our family and our ministry and our opportunities because we're stewards, we're not owners. We'll understand what it means to be a worshiper if we're raised properly in a family, that you know the mission of God is, is his glory. It's the glory of God. And so we we live a vertical life, not just a horizontal life, concerned with the next hockey game, the next baseball game, the next soccer match, the next test, the next exam, um, you know, the next assignment. But we we worship him. So in in a in a family, we have this nurturing and we have this teaching that we receive. And mothers and fathers are both important in that. But I would say in general, mothers tend to be more nurturing than fathers. They're, they're, they're softer. They have softer bodies. They're, they're more generally more kind and expressive in their love and sympathetic. So that's a good thing for a child to experience. And fathers tend to be, you know, they want to wrestle with their kids and they have a more of authoritative presence over their children. They tend to initiate discipline. And both these roles 
one is not better than the other, but they both complement each other, and they they help children to be to be raised in a way that that balances them out. So the the, the child is also taught in that to honor their father and mother, like make their job easy. It's interesting when you listen to or when you read passages like our books, like the Proverbs, the, the first several chapters, they're all kind of framed up in a similar way. It's the father, the one with experience, the one who's you know lived a long life, passing on life lessons, proverbial wisdom to his son, like, listen to my, my words, son, he says over and over again. And that's a great vision, a great picture where one generation nurtures and teaches the next. So one of the... Um, fundamental aspects of a, a Christian household, a biblical household, a creational household, is that it's it's a nurturing pedagogical institution. Now, I probably know the answer to this next question, but do you think there's a direct link between family and cultural stability? I do. I, I think that if when you look at cultures where family structures are unstable or unbiblical, you have the rise, rise in crime. So if you look at um, depressed or suppressed neighborhoods where there's a lot of single parents, where there's not a lot of employment, where there's not a lot of nurture and good teaching, you have more gangs. You have a, a rise in crime. You have a rise in opioid addictions, etc. cetera. Um, kids are not born civilized. <laughs> they're they're kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And parents have to civilize them. And that's part of the nurturing, the pedagogical process. So directly or indirectly, stable families produce everything else that's stable in culture. Stable families produce stable businesses. Stable families produce stable churches. Stable families produce stable courts. They actually lessen the need for you know, as many courts and, and police officers and, and whatnot. So while... The world, the world's um, naive and they're ignorant, right? Because they they diminish the family. They sort of teach everybody you can live however you want. It doesn't matter what structure you live in. Everything's acceptable. And then there's all these consequences. But if you if you take a a neighborhood uh, or a community where there tends to be a higher rate of mothers and fathers, marriages are intact. Kids are being taught, they're being cared for, they're going to church, they're obeying God's law. Everybody benefits from that. Everybody. So even from a, even if you even if you aren't a Christian from a pragmatic perspective, why would you not want to reduce pain and suffering and dysfunction in society by advocating for a robust view of the family? Mm-hmm. And that seems like a good solution then too, when we consider the cultural decay that we're seeing around us, you tie it back to the the problems at the root. It looks like yep. we've seen the decay of family long before it manifests itself in the greater widespread cultural decay. Now, obviously marriage, it's, it's a sexual union, but families also affect our view of sexuality, gender, and morality, and on and on and on. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? When a man and woman come together in a marital covenant, they cement that covenant through the act of sexual intercourse and ongoing sexual intercourse. And of course, there's pleasure to that, which God ordained and created. So that's a good thing. There's um, relational intimacy and security that's expressed in the sexual bond. There's also procreation. So moms and dads produce babies. And you produce one of two kinds of babies, 
You produce male babies or you produce female babies. So when we speak of the family as a sexual institution, we're not just talking about sexual intercourse. That's reserved for the parents. But there's sexuality as part of our identity as created beings. Uh, we were born male or we're born female. So when you're when you get an announcement that you know your friend had a baby, and you say, How, "What is it?" They don't say, "It's a human." Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's seven pounds one ounces. No, they say, "It's a boy" or "It's a girl." Our identity from day one is in part expressed. It's not our complete identity, but in part expressed through our sexuality. So, in a family, you have you raise boys, or you raise girls, or you raise both. And the parents have a tremendous impact in shaping the sexual identity of their children. So I have sons and daughters, and I I instill biblical truth in all of them equally, but I rightly interact with and raise my girls in a little bit of a different way than I do my boys. The way I communicate with them, the way I discipline, the way I call them out on things, the way I challenge them. I'm naturally more soft, more um, tender, more careful with my words around my daughters. Um, I'm I'm more uh, maybe abrupt. I challenge. I wrestle more with my boys. You know, there's you raise your children differently, and um, when your children reach certain milestones, you, you know, you affirm in, in official ways, their masculinity, their, their maleness, their femaleness. We do that. We kind of do a weekend away when each of our kids has turned 13, which they all have. The youngest is 16. Now the oldest turned 23 yesterday. And uh, when they're an adult, we, we affirm you're, you're an adult. Now you're a man, you're, you're a full grown woman. Like you're responsible for your life now. So we, we have those sort of rites of passage and, and there's other things we do to sort of affirm their maleness and their femaleness. And this is one of the blessings of being raised in a home that's intact with parents that love the Lord is that they help you to understand your your sexual identity. Again, I don't want to suggest that our sexual identity is our fundamental identity. Our fundamental identity is in Christ. But we are products of a physical world and I am a man. I'm 100% a man. I don't have a female side to me. I'm a man. Right. So, you know, sometimes people will say you need to get in touch with your feminine side. Mm-hmm. I don't have one. And I don't want my wife to have a masculine side. I am a male. And various men have shaped me over the years to understand what it means to be a male. And fundamentally, that takes place in the household. So, just to tag on to that, uh, maybe for our listeners, it would help to distinguish is there a creational maleness versus a traditional maleness and creational femaleness versus a traditional femaleness so that we don't get caught up in just what is maybe cultural male, cultural female. Excellent question. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, yes, there is because cultures have all different views of what a man is. Some cultures are very few of them, but there are some cultures throughout history that are matriarchal where the, 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 the mom kind of rules the household. It's very rare, but there are matriarchal cultures. And then there are patriarchal cultures. And then there, there are hard patriarchal cultures where there's um, male dominance, like with an unrelenting form of male dominance that's actually very destructive. Then there's soft patriarchal cultures where men lead, but there's a, there's a love and, and virtue attached. And then there's egalitarian cultures where 
everyone's sort of equal. And then there's sort of fake egalitarian cultures where uh, they say everybody's equal, but really women are elevated above maleness. So the creational norm, we look at Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We look at passages like Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, which is seeking to recapture and, and redeem what was lost in the fall. They line up perfectly, you know, written thousands of years apart. And fundamentally, being a man, apart from your biology, is to lead, to expect respect, to take initiative, even in the sexual act. Men initiate, women receive. Don't want to be graphic, but that's a part of our biology. Uh, men are generally physically stronger. There's a protective nature. Men are called to provide for their family. He who does not provide for his own, the Bible says, is worse than an infidel. Men can't bear children. Women nurture their children. They, they birth their children. They nurture their children. They nurse their children. They care for their children. They teach their children moral truths. Women have a huge influence on affecting the moral conscience of a child. And they submit to their husbands. And submission is not a dirty word. We never think of submission as Christians as a dirty word when it comes to Christ and the church. It's who we are. Every, mm -hmm. every time we worship, we submit to Christ. And we see Christ beautifully submitting to the Father, not because he's less God, but it's functionally, that was his role as the second person of the triune Godhead in Philippians chapter 2. So submission is a beautiful thing if it's in the context of a husband that's loving his wife like his own body. I mean, who wouldn't want to submit to that kind of a, a man if you're a woman? So the, this is the these are the, cr the creational foundations of of the family, and uh, really important for us to teach robustly and to to champion in our churches and homes. Very good. Now, different cultures see family connections, like i.e., my family's relationship with my parents, my brother's family, etc., in various ways. What's the biblical view of how different household and families can relate to one another and why is that important? Yeah. So some families are like, especially in honor families where there's like a clan mentality. So, you know, your, your last name is Eelman. So in a situation like that, if you're part of that culture, while there's, you know, the, the patriarch of the family, maybe your dad or grandfather and his wife, and then, um, you know, the kids under them and then your family and your kids, and you kind of all live in clans and, and you're not really your own household. You're sort of part of the clan and they sort of exercise control over your finances or where you live or your occupation or these sorts of things. You got to get permission from like the clan elder to act. So these, some cultures are like that, but the biblical view is leave and cleave. So when you, when you're married, the Bible demands and commands you to leave and cleave. That means you form, and it's not so much of a geographical reference. It doesn't mean you, you necessarily have to move down the street or to another province, but you form a new and distinct household. And you are not under the authority of your mother and father, nor is your wife. Now, why this is a beautiful thing is because in a fallen world, each family can mess it up. So Let's. I know. I know you have a great marriage. And you have great kids, Chris. But let's just say you you were terrible at it, and you know you just you weren't a good husband. You're incompetent, and your wife was incompetent. Your kids are kind of off the rails, and everything else. Well, the good news is, at some point, your kids are going to leave and cleave, and in doing that, what they have the opportunity to do is to hit a reset button and to start afresh. 
this is really important. So I come from a broken home where my parents divorced when I was very young and I was raised by my mom with my five siblings from the time I was 10 onwards. I had, I had a relationship of some sort with my father, but he wasn't present. We actually lived in different cities. And there's a pain in that and there's deficits in that. And, you, you know, at times you might feel a little ripped off that, you know, you weren't raised by a mom and a dad day to day. But instead of seeing that as a bad thing, the, the way I processed it is, well, I, I'm going to get married one day, Lord willing, and, and I did, and I can hit the reset button. I'm not under my mom's authority, my dad's authority, and I haven't been for 30 years. So I've, I've been able to hit the reset button and start afresh. So this is good news to those that might be listening, thinking, man, I, I kind of got gypped. Like I was raised in a family that didn't get this right. Well, learn from the positives and learn from the negatives. And when you leave and cleave, hit the reset button. So there's, there's sort of a recreational opportunity, an opportunity to reboot uh, when, when each new family is sort of cemented. So if you're coming from a dysfunctional opportunity, it's an opportunity for you to, to sort of um, uh, find renewal. So I would just say this. Uh, Christians are not into this pagan clan mindset. That's sort of from paganism. And if you are a parent that is a helicopter parent and your children have reached adulthood, and especially if they're married and you're still trying to control them, you're actually sinning. That's not a creational approach. You might want to see your kids. You might have a, a sort of a guttural, emotional desire to keep them under your roof. No, let them go. Maintain a good relationship with them, hopefully, but let them go release them. So there's nothing more irritating than the interfering, you know, proverbial mother-in-law, right? Mm -hmm. the, or the interfering father-in-law. It's like, get lost. We're a couple now. Like, leave us alone. Stop helicopter parenting us. We react to that, and we rightly should react to that because each new household is distinct and un, un, unto themselves. They're a new institution, and they're responsible to manage their own affairs. That's helpful. I think that is, yeah. <laughs> and you know why? I'll just say this. Culture is not neutral. Some cultures have this notion that the clan mindset is, it's just a cultural thing. That's what we do. Oh, in our, in our clan, that's what we do. It doesn't matter what your culture says. We need to go back to the Bible. And the Bible does not support that clan mindset where there's a patriarch who's controlling multiple families or households under his authority. Each family, each household, I mean, we, we live in villages and cities and towns and whatnot, but each household is distinct under unto itself in terms of its authority. So we can challenge people, even who come from like honorific clan type cultures. That's not biblical. The biblical model is when your children marry, they are their own distinct household. And that's going back again, creational rather than traditional or cultural yes. or what we, um, you know, allowing scripture to inform our own culture that we grew up in as well. So what attacks or threats to the family do you think we need to be most aware of in this day and age? There's a real heavy emphasis on liberty. The world and especially Western culture has this notion that we have to get rid of these enslavement sort of institutions like the family. They sort of, they, they, they steal our liberty. They steal our creativity. They steal opportunity. But these liberty movements are actually liberty-less. They, they lead to enslavement. They lead to uh, pain. They lead to disease, anxiety. Um, 
when we start to redefine what a marriage is, which is foundational to any household, it's always a disaster. It's always a disaster. It might have, it might be fun for a little while, but it's a disaster. When men marry men, women marry women, well, you can't procreate. So you got to go find heterosexuals, children. Uh, when there's th- three spouses in a relationship, there's there's jealousy, transmission of disease, that this kind of thing. It's it, all these r- attempts to redefine when when parents treat their children as if their children are equal to them in authority. That's a problem, and the government is promoting that right, even with this vaccination stuff, where kids can get a vaccine, an experimental vaccine, without parental consent. They're saying that the parents have no authority over their children. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. So smaller family sizes, we have uh, even, in, even in churches today, it's like, ah, I just, I just want, you know, the proverbial 1.6 children, you know, children are kind of like, they're fun. I mean, I, I like to have them, you know, be sort of, it's like buying a teddy bear, you know, who, who doesn't want to hold on to a cute baby and dress them up and take them to church and, you know, run around the park every Saturday. But there, there's sort of a selfishness to that. And I'm not suggesting that having a, you know, maximizing your fertility and having 30 kids over the course of your life is everyone's calling. You're, I don't think a woman's uterus won't even sustain that. But this, this, the, the very low fertility rates in our culture are tied directly to the idolatry of money, the idolatry of freedom, the, the idolatry of hedonism, and et cetera, and a lack of this self, selfless desire to, to do what God has told you to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply. And if you've bought into the ecological lie that the world is too um, overpopulated, you really need to travel a bit more. I've traveled all over the world, and there are millions upon millions upon millions of acres of land completely uninhabited. It just seems overpopulated because we cram everybody into these massive cities and you know, squish everybody all together. And, and it, it seems to be overpopulated, but it's ridiculous. It's not. There's lots of room. Um, so feminism is all part of that. You know, the feminist movement, which first wave feminism ha- was somewhat of a blessing that it, it freed women from a lot of tyranny, allowed them to vote, etc. But second and third wave feminism is, is disgusting and terrible and destructive whereby uh, women are being told to, to be freed from their creational roles. Hmm. Like being a mother, oh, that's bad. Being a businesswoman, that's where it's at, right? Being a, a, a godly wife, well, you don't want to do that. So women are being driven you know, into the, what they perceive as being the security of the lesbian relationships or promiscuous lifestyles or you know, being sterilized very young so they can't have children. Um, so there's a lot of uh, attacks on liberty, and the state, of course, is complicit in that, where they want to educate all of our children. So all, all of these things sort of uh, um, are, are overt attacks on the family that we're, we're kind of all aware of. And there's many other things, of course, that uh, – that we need to be aware, you know, looking out for as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I think is something we've seen over even the course of the last generation or two, where there's very, very overt attacks against the family right now. But at the same time, progressively over a long time, there's been subtle attacks. And maybe you can speak to some of the subtle attacks, maybe in history or even today, that might not be as apt to be on our radar. 
Well, I think of no-fault divorce laws where you can just kind of divorce on a whim more or less. Nobody's really responsible for the breakdown of the marriage, so everyone just sort of washes their hands of it. It makes it very easy. That's a that's an attack on the family. Um, and this I, the, kind of this delayed um, that this problem we have in culture of of delayed adulthood. So what's interesting is as I look at some young people today, I might be chatting with you know, some young people. And I realized, oh, you're actually a lot younger than you look. Like they, they look like adults earlier, but they act like adults later. Hmm. So you have 15, 16-year-old boys and girls that kind of look like men or women. You think they're older than they are. But then you meet guys that are 25 and 30 years old, still living in their parents' basement, working 10 hours a week, no direction. no no no. They're not pursuing women. They're just sort of watching pornos, playing video games, frittering their wives' lives away, um, getting fat, you know, these kinds of things. They're just, they're wasting their lives. This is not how young people are supposed to live. You know, young people, young adults are supposed to be, you know, into the work world, maybe finishing up their education, pursuing a spouse, bearing children, contributing to the world. So we have this uh, delay of, of manhood and why not? Because they have all these artificial, quote unquote, marital opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, they can just, if they, if they have sexual desires, they can just watch porn all day long. They can, uh, if they want to have a, a relationship, but they don't want to be really committed to it, they can just be serial daters, just date one girl, date the next girl, maybe fornicate here and there. So why, why get married? If you're afraid of the other gender or you've been abused sexually, well, just you can just enter into a gay union. Everyone will applaud that. They'll give you a whole summer to celebrate it, actually. Um, so we have a, a sort of a, a, a problem with, I think, immaturity along, uh, among a lot of young men. We have a, a problem, I think, with shallowness in a lot of young women who are being sexualized and told that it's just all about their looks and appearances. So you look at their social media, it's just all, you know, the the puffy lipped glamour shot, you know, the the, the puppy eyed glamour shot. There's 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 nothing on their substantive about their accomplishments or maybe what they're thinking about the scriptures or um, you know, their their relationships or friendships with people they're mentoring or being mentored by. It's just it's just all glitz and glam. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sad to, it's sad to see. And, you know, then we have the the subtle, maybe this falls more into the category of the overt attacks, but the the state is terrible. The, 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 the attacks on parental authority are, are unbelievable. So I mentioned earlier, you know, you can get the vaccine for in exchange for an ice cream cone when you're a child without parental consent. Then you go to school and I had a teacher tell me that the, you know, kid can pick their gender and inform the teacher what they want to be called. And the parents don't even have to be informed about that. So you could have a boy at home and little do you know, he's a girl at school. Parents don't even know about that. Um, in some countries, the penalization of homeschooling as if the, you know, the all, pre- all prevailing state, the all, all powerful, all wise state knows what's best for your children. I mean, yeah, there's incompetent parents out there that probably do a terrible job teaching their kids, but let's correct that problem rather than just passing it off to the state. So all of these things combined with an overemphasis on family planning, a reduction of birth rates, um, uh, an inability to see children as a gift from God, 
all of these are attacks that denigrate the creational view of the family. Yeah. And, you know, you, as you point that out, I think to myself, some of those things are more culturally familiar to me and some of them are less culturally familiar because of the, the place and time which I grew up in. And just reminds me that, you know, all of us as Christians wanting to follow faithfully what Jesus, what the Lord has laid out, need to go back to the creational mandate and allow it to question our assumptions. And I know you've said this before because some people like their, they have their like, um, almost like pet projects that they call out certain aspects of culture that are wrong, but they ignore mm. blatant issues in their own life where they're ignoring creational mandates. Uh, and so it's like, you got to be play fairsy squaresy, right? And yeah. hit all of them. Yeah. We're, we're all being uh, reformed and, uh, you know, retooled and renewed. This is why we're into scripture, the constant renewing of the mind, because we've grown up in a culture of lies so some of the things that I might challenge the listeners to consider may be ones that they're already doing wonderfully in, and others are like, oh, man, I never even thought about that. Or I've thought about it. I'm just still disobedient. So we're, we're all in process. We've, we've got some things down, me included, some things we don't have down yet, me included, some things we're just ignorant about, me included, and some things we're just being willfully rebellious about, and we need to make those correctives. Mm-hmm. So if you were to paint for us the picture of an ideal family, the dynamics that mark it, and maybe some of the principles that protect it, what would that look like for you? It starts with the marriage. So the the marriage, the, the couple that's leading the household, needs to understand that their marriage is fundamentally a display of the gospel. So they need to play those roles as Ephesians 5 teaches them. And then Ephesians 6, they need to train their children up and they need to, uh, uh, you know, father doesn't want to um, goad his child into, into anger, but he needs to, to teach them and require that that child honors himself and, and the child's mother. Um, so that's important. Uh, having a comfort with and a um, commitment to helping the child to understand what it means to be a male or a female. So having a kind of a robust biblical understanding of human sexuality and raising your sons and daughters accordingly, that that would be very present. It wouldn't just be passed off to the youth pastor or assumed. It would be talked about around the dinner table. It would be discussed. There would be checks and balances in place. If a daughter is uh, becoming very sexual and immodest in the way she dresses, mom and dad will address that. If a son is being inappropriate in his interaction with girls, mother or father would address that. You know, there would be uh, a vetting of potential suitors, uh, you know, as they, as your child matures and other, you know, boys and girls take an interest in your, your kids and dating relationships start, there would be a, an oversight over that, some direction given. So that's all kind of under the umbrella of kind of the, the sexual identity. There would be um, in a family, a, a robust theology of stewardship. So you want your kids to serve, not just run around looking to be served. You're going to assign chores. You're going to ask them to be accountable and responsible for their possessions. You're going to ask them to tithe and to, to give to their church and to be generous with their money. Um, you're going to want to talk to your kids about procreation. Talk to them about human sexuality and the birds and the bees and take responsibility. Don't not just to assume it, but to 
to be explicit about it and to be to be clear about it. I mean, you hear these ridiculous stories of kids that were raised in homes and the parents, Christian parents, never talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. maybe the dad, you know, uses uses the old oh, the baseball bat and the glove illustration. Well, the glove's kind of the girl and the baseball bat's kind of the guy and son. You you kind of get the rest, right? The kids are like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is like the classic example of incompetent parenting where you sort of allude to it, you you know, you give some illustrations, but you don't actually help your child to understand what human sexuality is and and how everything works. You will disciple your children. <laughs> this is fundamental. You'll preach the gospel to them. You'll you'll encourage them to uh, live for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to raise the flag in the flagpole, to express their faith into the world, and to be part of a local church and to develop meaningful, healthy uh, relationships. And then maybe a couple other things that come to mind would be just equipping them for the world around them. So you're going to want to educate your children um, yourself or at least oversee it in cohorts or through a Christian school. You're going to want to make sure that they have a proper view of the world, a nice classical education where they understand truth, they can communicate truth, they can debate truth. You want them to have a proper understanding of law and justice and mercy and forgiveness. And you're going to want to model that. You're going to want to model forgiveness to your child when you you mess up, when you drop the ball. And you're going to want to extend forgiveness to them when they're in tears because they realize they've done wrong. So um, those are some things that you must do. So just foundational commitments that you must uh engage in if you're going to successfully raise children for Christ. Now, one of the values that we've seen over and over again is that the Christian faith is an imitative faith. Mm. And so you've spoken many times about the power of finding people to imitate in their families. Um, And so I guess that may be just a a final recommendation too, is like look for people that do it better and imitate them as well. Yeah. And if, if you are from, a family, if, if your family of origin didn't do this, look, mine didn't really either. I mean, there was some positives about the way I was raised, but there was some glaring <laughs> deficits as well. Primarily because I wasn't raised in an intact family. And, you know, we moved around a lot. And we weren't super committed to um, really attending a local church and participating. I did that more or less by myself. So there's some good lessons. I wasn't really taught a positive view of human sexuality. It was more like, don't do that, don't do this. But it wasn't like a a positive view of human sexuality. I wasn't really, there was lots of conversation that took place in our home about intellectual issues, but I, I wasn't given any direction in terms of a vocation or you know, how to be a student or sort of how to make life choices. I was given zero direction in terms of financial planning or management. So these are all things I had to learn after the fact. But I have learned them. And I've learned them because there's lots of people in the world. (laughs) And you can learn from good examples and bad examples. So just, you know, he who spends time with wise men will be wise. So spend time with wise people, learn from wise people. If you're a younger parent, Let's say you have pre-elementary aged kids. Make sure you're watching the parents that have elementary aged kids. If you have elementary aged kids, pay attention to the parents that have high school aged kids, etc. Always look to those that are a little bit further ahead of you 
and learn from them. Learn from their positive examples and pay attention to their negative examples. You can learn from that too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we have all of these opportunities. What you don't want to do, you don't want to be passive. Okay, if you're going to be passive, don't bother having kids. In fact, if you're going to be passive, don't get married. But if you're going to be proactive and a person of initiative, you know, this is one of, these are some of the fundamental building blocks to, to marriage and family. But don't let the state educate your children. Mm-hmm. Don't let them educate your children. What I mean by that, don't let them take primary responsibility to shape your children's worldview and their mindset. Don't trust them. They've, they've proven themselves to be untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. There, this is not a Christianized culture where there's Christian elements and values being taught, nor is it a post-Christian culture where there's just sort of, well, sort of a neutrality. We're not quite sure about it. This is an anti-Christian culture where the, the state and the educational institutions that you, you might be tempted to send your kids to because they're free or cheap will actually indoctrinate your children with lies and your children will be destroyed by that. So, Take responsibility to educate your children, and the same applies to marriage. Don't take your cue from the you know a sitcom as to what a marriage looks like. Spend time with wise people and spend time in the Word of God, and you'll flourish. Well, thanks for this conversation about healthy families and their influence on culture. Just a reminder to our listeners that we are heard on the CJXC Radio, Canada's constant Christian companion, both on 11 a.m. Tuesdays and rebroadcast 11 p.m. on Thursdays. And as mentioned at the beginning of the show, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, we're also on there, along with a growing list of other podcasts, both from the Canadian side and the U.S. side. And also just a reminder again about that conference coming up. So go to flfnetwork.com and look up the uh, events tab to find more about that conference coming up. Thank you for listening. And we hope that you will tune in next week to another episode of the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Mm -hmm.